Thanks for tuning into the Life in the Front Office podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thanks to Suja Organic for their support. Remember, you can get 15% off any one-time pack on shop.sujajuice.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O. And enjoy today's episode. Welcome to today's episode on the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suja Organic. Excited for today's episode with Katie Crawl from the Boston Red Sox development coach. And we're gonna get into Katie's career path, uh, her journey into professional baseball on the player side, uh, what being a coach is like within a front office, uh, both you know around the minor leagues uh, at the different levels, as well as uh, we'll get into kind of the different intricacies of what player development even means. Um, and nonetheless, Katie, welcome. Thanks, Jake, I'm excited to be here. So let's start off with how you got into professional baseball. Uh, also, your career path, just in terms of getting in, going out of out of baseball, coming back in. But uh, let's start off with like, where did did the dream start somewhere? Absolutely, it started in the back of my seventh grade homeroom when I read Moneyball for the first time, and it really Jake shifted the way that I viewed the sport, and I realized that even if I wasn't playing shortstop for the Cubs, I could still contribute to the game in a meaningful way. So everything after that moment was trying to structure my path in order to best position myself to work in baseball. And I graduated from Northwestern in three years, and there was an opportunity to work in the league office in league economics and operations and labor relations. And so that was probably one of the the first experiences that I can cite and say everything changed from there. I found another fellow colleague that graduated college in three years. I quick question. Nice. <laughs> How'd you do it? Uh, I came in with a year of AP credit. My mom had graduated from Northwestern in three years too. So I wanted to match her. You record. didn't want to one up her and go in two years. <laughs> I wish I could have, they didn't let me. Um, no, but I love Northwestern. It was a phenomenal experience. And my twin sister and I, we had opportunities to play golf at Yale and Georgetown and other really great schools, but I knew going to Northwestern and, finishing a little bit early would allow me to get in the trenches immediately. And so that's what New York afforded me. And that was the opportunity that I took. Amazing. So when you, when you left college and you went to the league office, obviously being at the league office exposed to a ton, especially once you start mentioning, you know, league economics and labor relations and all that, what was the biggest aha moment for you when you got into the league office to go, what are the career options here? Because you look around you and let's just face it, there's not as many people that look like you. Absolutely. And I think what's unique about working at headquarters is you have exposure to all 30 teams. So you get a sense of their culture, you get to build relationships across the league. I think, um, you know, often being one of the only women in the room, it definitely was something that I was cognizant of. And I think that baseball as a whole is taking meaningful steps in order to have more women in key positions, but there definitely are areas of improvement. Um, but with that being said, I think that my work spoke for itself and the ability to write 60 page memos for Chris Young or to learn about salary arbitration from Deputy Commissioner Dan Halem and work with Pat Houlihan on putting together a deck. You know, those were experiences that were incredibly formative. And I think that people recognized that I was there for a reason and it was because I added value in a meaningful way. What was the biggest lesson you learned while you were at the league office as to how the different clubs operate separately from one another, right? Like you're in the Red Sox organization as a coach, but understanding 
how all of them go about their player development systems and and the salary arbitrations and all the all the the economics behind it. Absolutely. I think everyone's solving the same homework assignment, but they're going about it in different ways in that whether you're the Diamondbacks or you're the Yankees, your goal is to win a World Series. And there are different strategies that you can deploy in order to best position yourself to do so. But you'll see different clubs, I think, really do well in certain areas and kind of have their calling card, whether that's being really adept at salary arbitration or finding value on the minor league free agency market or being able to acquire a pitcher like the Astros are great at this, so are the Rays, and really optimizes arsenal and mix. So I think from having those conversations and from working with the different people at all 30 orgs, you get a sense of, oh, wow, this is this is their signature aspect of their front office. And does that change with regimes? Do you see that that strategy or that approach change as people come in and out? Or is that, hey, this is the staple of this organization, regardless of who's in the seats? I think it's dynamic. But with that being said, there probably are calling cards or processes that are in place that have been streamlined over the past decade to half decade, where you kind of have a sense of even if it's not Jed Hoyer leading the Cubs, these are for the most part, the types of philosophies that they tend to embody. So I would definitely say that you still have tone set at the top in many respects, but by the same token, I think the, the spectrum of where teams fall across the industry, it has kind of remained the same in my opinion since maybe like 2010, 2015. When you think about your ability to make an impact in an organization, like you mentioned, right? Like that being the goal, how did you get to being a coach? Like what was the, hey, I'm dealing with all of the numbers and I'm learning about all of the stuff behind the scenes, but now I want to actually go out and interact with players and, and be on the field and impact in that way. I had never considered it, Jake. I think there were, growing up, there were no women who were in uniform on the field. So it didn't even seem conceivable. Whereas, you know, I could cite Kim Ng or Jean Afterman or Raquel Ferreira and say, okay, there are women who have been in front office executive roles. I could be one of them someday. I think that changed when I was at Google and teams had called me about different opportunities in pro scouting and analytics. And they all sounded really interesting, but I felt like if I were to leave what is a really amazing company after such a short tenure, it would have to be for something really unique and for something that I felt like was bigger than baseball. And to be in uniform for the Red Sox felt like it was bigger than baseball in many ways. So I think the background that I had in leveraging information in having spent the summer of 2017 on the Cape working with players and other coaches, I felt like I was pretty comfortable being in those spaces. So when Brian Abraham, the director of PD at the Red Sox called me and offered the job, it was a no brainer. You know, I sent my laptop back to Google the next day. What were you, what were you doing at Google and, and how did you get to Google? I mean, a lot of people aspire to go work for a company like that, right? Let alone do what you're doing now. Yeah, I know a lot of people think I'm crazy for having left Google. <laughs> But I was on the global strategy team. So a lot of my friends affectionately referred to it as black ops of Google. So focusing on Google Workspace, which is a $5 billion entity within Google's portfolio. And they actually found me through the University of Chicago. So I finished my MBA from UChicago in June of this year. And um, there was someone who had worked in baseball and then left the industry who had a connection and a friend. And so I spoke with him for a little bit, spoke with some other people on the team, went through the process and actually, honestly, Jake felt like I didn't do well at all in the interviews. I was 
really nervous. It was a different type of process than I was accustomed to having gone through baseball interviews in the past, but for whatever reason, they seemed to like me and got offered the job. It was a remote team because it's global strategy. So we had folks who were in Japan, we had people who were in Southern California uh, and a really great experience. And I definitely think that everything that's written and said about the company is true in terms of their ability to empower people and to really set a positive culture. What did you learn from that Google experience and also your MBA? Because I, I wanna get to that as well that you've been able to take to baseball, right? Sometimes when people look at the, the player side, they go, well, there's no transferable skills to the business side or vice versa, but mm -hmm. there is, but then there, there's also the, the coaching aspect that you're in now. And that's not necessarily transferable to global strategy for a cloud space, right? Yes. So I think the synergy exists and the takeaways center on the ability to translate information. So Google obviously has a lot of resources, both in terms of human capital, technological ability. So to hone in on and focus on the key takeaways or the leading indicators, whatever your measurements are, and then the ability to broadcast that to a larger group, I find myself doing that on a daily basis as a coach. You know, when you're talking to Brian Bayo and you're telling him, hey, your sinker is filthy, your split's been great, but when you allow damage, it's often on your fastball. And even though it's 97 or 98, it's a little bit straight. There are lots of different ways I could show that to him. There are lots of different ways that I could have that conversation. And I think at Google, the ability to pinpoint and cite the key measurables, that's something that I think I found myself doing with players as well. Yeah, that translation of information is so key. And that's, that's mm -hmm. across any aspect of the business. But when I even think back to my short time with the Mariners, it was the gap between analytics to the coat, to the, to the staff, to the coaching staff, to the player, right? Like that, it's almost like playing telephone. And by the mm -hmm. time you get to the player, it doesn't necessarily make sense or they don't know how to apply it and, you know, what they do. Right. Um, when you think about that, that line of information and getting it from, you know, the, the, those that are coding to, you know, generating the reports, to understanding the reports, to getting the reports, to the coaches, to then, allow the coaches to understand how to use data to coach because that's not easy either. And then to translate it to the player, which, oh, by the way, there might be a language barrier too. So talk through that process of how complex it is and, and ultimately where the success lies in that. Absolutely. And your telephone analogy is spot on because there's a lot of noise right now and there are lots of different third-party entities that have different pieces of technology that are very valuable, but also can be difficult to interpret and then translate. So I think what I've seen the Red Sox do and other successful orgs is being really diligent and creative in identifying the key player plan goals. So what are we going to do for Hudson Potts this year? What do we need to have Brendan Nail work on in order for him to be at his best. And I think when you can use those as the cornerstones of your conversation, then everything centralizes around that. Whereas historically in baseball, I think there was a lot of stereo teaching where someone would tell you in double A, hey, your slider's fantastic. We really want you to use it against both lefties and righties. And then suddenly you get to triple A and it would be, ah, you know what? It's a little bit too slurvy. We just want you to have like a high ride fastball or we want to focus on maybe like a cutter. And so you had players who are a little uncertain of who to listen to and, you know, the, the validity of the voices. So I think when you can have the a consistent messaging across 
groups and then also be really mindful of the timing. So I think you can have some players who maybe if they're going through a slump can search and maybe be willing to try anything or do anything just simply to get out of what they feel like is the crater of their career. So being very cognizant of the fact that, you know, when you can approach a player with a message sometimes can be even more important than the content of that message. Love it. And, and there's also this element of like, when I was playing, at least uh, I was the overthinker and, and as a pitcher and overthinker, usually not a good combination, mm-hmm. but the coach would go, well, just keep it simple, stupid, like just <laughs> play. Right. And so there's also that element of like, how do you also let the players just do what they naturally are able to do too? Totally. And it's not like baseball is a calculus test, right? Where one would think, oh, the more you prepare, the more you do more problem sets, you're going to perform better. Sometimes in many cases, there too much practice is too much. You know, like later in the season, we would have guys who would want to throw their um, front toss. And honestly, we said to them, you know what, like the way that you've been pitching, the kind of miles on your arm right now, like maybe let's skip this one. And sometimes because pitchers especially are so routine oriented, that can throw them off a little bit. But by the same token, you know, there is something to be said for letting it breathe, or being a little bit more relaxed and fluid in terms of how often you do something. I want to go back to your MBA experience mm-hmm. because you're you're going into the baseball field where, uh, you know, I don't know is 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 the MBA respected across the player side, right, versus the business side, and you go back to uh, get your edu- you know more education. What went into that decision, and how has that impacted? your career now along the way as you're pulling from experiences or people that you were connected to there? Absolutely. I think what you saw, Jake, in baseball for a long time was people like Theo getting their JDs. And I think that stemmed from the amount of negotiation that's required in roster construction. And I believe that as contracts have become a little bit more boilerplate, not to say that law school isn't valuable, but I felt like with the resource allocation, thinking about the competitive advantages that teams are trying to assemble and then implement, that business school would afford me that. And the the individual that I really always have to thank for it is Scott Harris, um, who's now the president of baseball ops at the Tigers. But when we met, he was the assistant GM at the Cubs at the time. And I was interviewing with Chicago and we talked about how he was part-time at Northwestern while still working in baseball. And so during spring training, he would fly from Arizona back to Chicago, take classes at Northwestern on Saturday, and then fly back that, that night. So he said to me, Katie, if you can remain in the industry while also pursuing grad school and an MBA specifically, it's really going to be to your benefit because you're going to be able to take something that you learned in a stats class on Saturday to your or project management to your analytics code review on Monday. And so I think he really showed me kind of the the potential and the value of balancing both worlds as difficult as it was from a time management perspective. Well, and as we all know, the the time is limited on on the player side in terms of hours that you work and travel and everything like that. So as you've, you know, continued to grow in this role, um, what's the biggest piece of advice that you have for those that are trying to do what you've done so far uh, and you know whether it's advice from the career perspective of where to start or even just hey you're you're doing great work in the front office but there is the opportunity to be a coach at some point too because 
you're now the second coach with the Red Sox uh, from a female perspective, which is more than anyone in the league. And that's seemingly continuing to grow. Definitely. I think it's a combination of tenacity and timing. So being very mindful of the fact that there are opportunities in the industry, they are growing, um, but oftentimes the stars do have to align because you have very qualified people who are applying for a host of jobs. I think that the ways in which you can showcase your abilities are really incredible in a digital age in that you know you can have your code set up on GitHub, you can write an article on Fangraphs, you can present at a conference virtually. So I would recommend taking advantage of those types of opportunities in order to be able to demonstrate when you are interviewing with the Yankees or the Red Sox, you know, you can cite, well, when I created my own defensive positioning model, here are the things that I used. It was context neutral or it took into account base out states. So I think that being really strategic and intentional. So then when hiring season does come, you feel like you are in a better position than others in order to say, this is what I can bring to the table right now. And there's not gonna be a, as much of a learning curve because I have gone about this in this manner. And for those who don't know who are listening, what's what's the nuances around the hiring season with baseball? It's not like any other part of the industry where it's like, oh yeah, someone left, we need to backfill. Like there, And that's just kind of at any point in time throughout the year. Whereas, and, and look, you may have some organizations that, that as they're going through budgeting, they may go, hey, we might, you know, add these couple positions or whatever. But generally speaking in baseball, it's very regimented and, hey, here's the hiring season and this is when things open up and so on and so forth. Yes, exactly. And that's, again, baseball is filled with people who are creatures of habit. So it's almost always from October until I would probably say right before spring training begins. So you really have a, a three-month period where most roles are posted, are being interviewed for. I think the Fangraphs job board is a great resource. A lot of teams use Teamwork Online. So I would encourage anyone listening or anyone hoping to get into the industry to apply for lots of different jobs, even if you don't necessarily think you're qualified for them. I think going through the questionnaires, talking to different people, not only will it give you a better sense of where you want to work in the industry, because I think a lot of people say, oh, I just want to work in baseball, but being able to articulate, well, I want to be a data scientist, or I want to be a coach, or I want to be an area scout. I think being able to drill down into what your optimal job would be can be really valuable when you are going through the processes and hopefully weighing offers. Let's talk real quick. If you can give a really high level Here's generally how an organization is structured and the different opportunities, right? From scouting to player development, to the mm -hmm. analytics side, to more of the, we'll call it the front office. And then the coaching side, like just give a brief overview of what does that even look like and what are things called, right? Yes, absolutely. And one misperception that I'll correct because I had a lot of folks um, who are family or friends who didn't know this. If you're a minor league team, you almost operate as your own entity and there's a contract and a relationship with the major league club, but like, for example, the Portland Sea Dogs with the Boston Red Sox, like the GM of the Portland Sea Dogs doesn't determine the roster for the Portland Sea Dogs. And there were a lot of people um, who weren't aware of that. So I felt like that would be a good way to start answering this question. I would say on the major league side, from a front office perspective, what you're seeing now is a lot of one and twos. And I think that started with Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer in Chicago. So you could have like, um, Hyam Bloom at the Red Sox, president of baseball operations, Brian O'Halloran, the general manager. 
And then you're seeing a lot of um, maybe triumvirates or two or three assistant GMs beneath them. So you could have an assistant GM that oversees scouting and that might include pro scouting. So pro scouting is anyone who signed a professional contract. So whether they're um, you know, in minor league baseball or they're on the major league roster, international being anyone outside of the US and Puerto Rico. Um, so from the Dominican, from Venezuela, then you also have um, amateur scouting. So those are the individuals who oversee the draft. So you have area scouts who look at high school players, they look at college guys, uh, and then everything is really fixated around getting the, the 20 players that you're gonna have to sign hopefully um, in the draft annually. So that's kind of the scouting realm. Then um, analytics, also known as research and development, that's typically overseen by an assistant GM. And so that's your like more technical or quantitatively inclined individuals. So data scientists, um, people who have experience in machine learning, who basically harness the data. They're not necessarily collecting it or storing it. Those are more so like systems engineers. Uh, and then they take their findings and they'll either bring them to stakeholders in baseball operations who are focused more so on roster construction, major league coaches, and then you also have probably one of the most popular jobs that I've seen posted for not only this hiring cycle, but also the past several years is software developers. So thinking about, um, you know, maybe we're creating a new pitch design app and we want a software developer to come in and we want it to be web-based or we want it to be, um, you know, accessible on your iPhone. So those types of individuals who maybe have computer science backgrounds. And then in the player development realm, it's normally overseen by a vice president or a director of player development, and um, they oversee all of the minor league staff. So your minor league pitching coaches, your minor league hitting coaches, your development coaches, um, athletic trainers, um, strength and conditioning coaches, sports science, all of that has, I think, from what I've seen across the industry, kind of fallen under the player development umbrella. So those would be the main pillars, I would say, scouting, R&D baseball ops, and then also player development. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but it's it's complex in its own nature. And, and as you mentioned, right, everybody kind of goes about it differently. Some organizations might be stacked up in advanced scouting because that's mm -hmm. where they want to put their resources or, you know, more analytics versus less analytics, uh, more coaches versus, right? So like uh, even, at, even in your organization, like when, when you're a development coach, you know, you've got your head, you've got your manager, you've got your pitching coach, you've got your hitting coach. What's the role of a development coach and how does that all intertwine with the coaching staff at that specific location? Absolutely. So I think what appealed to me about the development coach job with the Red Sox was that it is a in uniform. Sometimes you coach first base, you're in the dugout every game, you travel with the team position. And I think that's so crucial because being in those spaces physically I think brings validity and opportunity when you are translating information that can be foreign in some respects, or maybe even um, a little bit uncomfortable for some players who maybe were at a college program and they had an analyst or they had someone who was part-time who tried to tell them what their blast data meant and it didn't work for them. So now they try to shy away from analytics. And I think for as many players as you now see who are well-versed in the data and hungry for it, there also are players who feel like they've been burned in the past and so are a little bit reluctant to engage with it. So I think being able to stand next to Christian Koss and talk to him about how he felt like the slider on a Yankees 
reliever who came in was playing and to be able to iterate with him in that moment, not only informed my understanding of what he needs in order to feel prepared for his at-bat, but I think also gave him the ability to speak to me, pick my brain in a way that he wouldn't have if I were in the stands or if I was back in the clubhouse. So I think it was a really unique role. I think the origin of it kind of stems from Sig Meidahl and Mike Elias in Houston, when a few years ago they put someone who was very much a quant, who was just basically like a numbers guy in the dugout in uniform. And I think other teams since then have recognized that value of in the same way you need somebody to oversee hitting, you need someone to oversee the integration of information at all levels. Love it. When when you think about um, Katie, when she was very first starting off in, you know, the league office, what would what would you give advice to yourself then that you now know that you now know? It's a great question. I've ruminated it on it a lot. I think, you know, if I caught myself walking out of um, 45th and Park after a long day of work, I would try to tell myself to be patient. I think that I've been really fortunate to have lots of different experiences throughout the game. And I think there is great value in enjoying the moment and looking around and saying, oh, wow, I'm at the MLB draft or, oh, wow, you know, like I'm standing on the field and I'm coaching first base. This is pretty extraordinary. So I think because things have moved at such a rapid pace that you can often forget how lucky you are and how incredible it is to work in this industry. All right. You ready for rapid fire? Yes, let's do it. (laughs) Um, Sport that you'd want to coach in or play outside of baseball. Ooh, uh, I love golf. So I definitely would love to play golf at a high level and travel all over the world. Okay, I'm taking you on that one. We're going to go best golf course you've played and best golf course you want to play. Pebble Beach want to play. Best golf course I've played probably Whistling Straits in Kohler, Wisconsin. Nice. Okay. Uh, are you shooting par? <laughs> no, my twin sister is. I'm probably at this point in my old age, probably like high 70s. Hey, that's very respectable. Let's, <laughs> let's, that, that's a you can go out and have fun and not worry about anything uh, type of golf. Right. Uh, <laughs> place that you've traveled to with baseball that you were like, wow, didn't know this, this place was that cool. San Diego for the winter meetings in 2019, the California burritos, the water, the people just absolutely love that part of California. Favorite stadium you've been to so far. Fenway. I hesitated because I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say Wrigley because of my Chicago roots, but I think Fenway is just the most incredible place in the world. What's uh, one player that you've looked up to along the way that you just like, if you could just sit down and have a baseball conversation with, you'd want to do? Derek Jeter was my favorite player growing up. And I read his autobiography, The Life You Imagined, shortly after Moneyball. <laughs> and uh, it was just fantastic. So I think you know, Jeter would be someone not only to talk about the game, but what it was like to, you know, survive and thrive in the New York media market, I think would be really interesting. All right. Last one for you. If you, if they said, Hey, Katie, you're going in the game, what position are you playing? Definitely second base. I think um, my feet are a little bit too slow for short, but I feel like I could handle myself at second.
Amazing, amazing. Well, Katie, really appreciate the insights, perspectives, uh, learning about your journey, your story, certainly an incredible one and, and really looking forward to seeing uh, your progress and success in the future. Definitely want to have you back on again in the near future to talk some more baseball and uh, best of luck in, in the upcoming season. Thanks, Jake. This was great. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suja Organic. Remember, you can get 15% off any one-time pack on shop.sujajuice.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O. And remember, if you like this episode or you like the Life in the Front Office podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Really appreciate you tuning in and stay tuned for the next one.